Well, it has been noted many times from this pulpit how America in general, but New England in particular, is becoming less and less religious. You really don't need to say it. You see it all the time in your daily life. The people around you, it's not a topic of conversation. It's not a practice. You don't go to church anymore. You don't see many people committing themselves to a formal uh, religious identification. And you might think because of that, that our society would become less and less moral, or that morality would have less and less of an effect. You know, the, the sense of uh, how to live your life, the conviction of what is the right way. You might think because we've become less and less religious that we would do away with guilt. That feeling that somebody has rules and they enforce them over you on how to live your life. Are you a good person? Do you measure up to the standard? You'd think there'd be less criticism, more tolerance, more acceptance. But of course, morality is everywhere. It's filled with uh, comments that are made throughout the day. It's everywhere we look. The internet is uh, not simply a place where we can connect with, with others. It's a place where we can bring our judgments and cast them on those around us, telling us one way how to live and, and shaming those who don't conform to what we think is our ideal. Every sphere of life comes under examination now. I have spent most of my life not uh, being concerned at all about uh, drinking through a plastic straw. But now I look at what it does and I feel tremendous guilt. What have I done to the world around me? You can talk about the injustices in society around us and it's no longer even acceptable to think it's wrong. Now, if we don't act, we're complicit in the wrong. I say these things not as uh, in any way to diminish the seriousness of some of the morality that's there or even the commendability of some of it, but to point out that we're continually being judged and guilt is all too present motivator for us. The absence of religion hasn't made us more carefree it, in, it has, in fact, opened the Pandora's box of everything that we can feel guilty about. But as we look at this passage, what we see is not the things themselves, not those bad behaviors that are really at issue, and whether we should do them or not. What is really at issue is putting ourselves under the judgment of others. Paul, in this passage, warns us about being judged. And that may be surprising to some of you, because what Paul is pointing to is not Christianity as the big ogre using guilt to make you feel bad and obey its rules, but Christianity actually as the place of relief, as the place where we can come and find freedom. Let's look again at understanding what Paul's after here, but before we do, let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Scripture. We confess so often that when we're apart from it, we, uh, we can turn it in and twist it into things that are bad news. Uh, use this word now to remind us of your truth for us and how it is a blessing. Be with us, sustain us, and encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This letter to the Colossians is uh, you know, two chapters in now, and Paul has basically been making just one point. Over and over again, he has been explaining and in, uh, in implying how they should live through it, the idea of Christ and who he is. He begins the passage talking about how thankful he is for now their faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes into great detail into this wonderful almost poem of who Christ is and how he should be preeminent in all things. And then he, he describes how the Christians should live their life and uh, it is not on their own. They should be rooted and grounded in Christ. Even when he talks about baptism, baptism is not about them. It's about Christ and Christ's sacrifice and Christ's judgment that he's gone through. It's all about Christ. And you can almost hear the Colossians say, okay, Paul, we get it. Enough theology. Give us what we want to hear. Tell us how to live life. Pastors are very familiar with that comment. Enough theology. Give me something I can go home and apply to my life directly to help me out. Give me the, the application that I'm longing for. I've got real trouble in my life. I want to know what to do. Or I want to know what to, to follow, the, the path to follow, so that I can feel confident that I'm not going to be judged. Give me the program to fix, to bring peace, to make life easier. If we keep going to Scripture with that expectation, we will be disappointed. Paul is going to continue, even as he talks about how we should live, he's going to continue to point back to Christ. But the Colossians think there should be more. The Colossians often, like us, can say, okay, great, I have embraced Christ. I'm re responding to this message of the gospel. But there seems like there should be something else. It's too simple. I get Jesus has died for my sins. But now tell me what I have to do to be okay, to get those things that my heart really longs for. Whether that be security, whether that be a sense of transcendence, an experience with God, the Colossians are looking for more. Well, it just so happens that some among the Colossians were starting to fill in those gaps of what they were looking for. These false teachers were promoting behaviors and activities that seemed to be saying that uh, in addition to Christ, you need to follow these things. And what he says, uh, he says many descriptions here of what they were promoting. And if we just take verse 18 to to look at the content, it could seem a little confusing to us, perhaps even uh, way out of our experience. I mean, worship of angels, uh, ascetic 
practices? I mean, really, what are they promoting that was so attractive? I think that it might be a little easier to understand Paul's point if you can uh, hear him or maybe even see him as he is saying this to them, rolling his eyes. Uh, he is uh, including a lot of irony in this statement as he describes uh, the false teachers who have come into Colossae and, and, um, and bothered the Colossian church. Just imagine St. Paul, the one who has seen the risen Christ, the one who has experienced God in a, in a very deep, profound way, uh, joining you on the couch and flipping through the, the cable uh, television channels until he gets to the religious channel and he sees what is happening at Colossae and just rolling his eyes saying, oh, these super spiritual people, they are going on and on about their visions of heaven. But they are really fleshly. That's the, the word, instead of sensuous, um, I think uh, better translation, it's, it's literally translated fleshly. And you sort of get Paul's point there. All these people who talk a big talk like they're spiritual, really, they're fleshly. Their mind, their sensuous mind, their fleshly mind is of this world. They don't know what they're talking about. In the same way, we sort of miss his point about uh, asceticism. The word is actually humility. And I can understand. Translators don't want to change humility. Humility is a good thing. Why would that be a bad thing? But the word is actually um, humility. But see how he balances it out. He says, those who are talking all the time about their humility are puffing themselves up. You see, there's a false humility. There's a sense in which they're playing the game of religion. They're doing all those things you would expect religious people to do. And through it, they are manipulating the Colossians. Well, who are they? Who are those who are these false teachers? There's uh, many books written on the subject uh, arguing, are they uh, Greek philosophers? Are they uh, Jewish? Are they sort of mix of both? I think most are trying to point to them being Jewish um, agitators, because there's talk of, of Sabbath and food restrictions and observance of the law. But that really doesn't fit the picture here. I mean, there's no Old Testament restrictions on what you can drink for the average uh, Jewish person. They didn't worship angels. They didn't promote severity of the body. And certainly, Paul would never have spoken about the Old Testament or the law of Moses as a human precept and teaching. No, I'm not quite sure that it's uh, Jewish Christians coming in, corrupting them. In fact, I think that Paul doesn't want us to really care about who the false teachers were or even the content of what they were saying. No, he keeps things very generic. He could be saying, stop listening to the things they've been saying. He uses such broad terms. Don't let anybody tell you about food or drink. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> or regulations and precepts and teachings. He says, 
Don't give in to people who say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But that could mean anything. And really, what's the difference between do not handle and do not touch? The issue is not what they should be avoiding. The issue is, rather, don't let yourselves be judged. Don't let them use all of these things, whether they're good, some of those things are commendable, or bad, don't let them use them to judge you. And that's the crucial point. It's not that these false teachers were promoting necessarily bad things. It's that they were using these practices to condemn and to judge. They have been turning these behaviors into what he calls in verse 23, self-made religion. What is so wrong with self-made religion? Well, I want to look at three dangers that Paul brings out in this passage. We'll start with the last one that he includes in that last verse, in verse 23. He says that self-made religion is ineffective. It won't work. It may have the appearance of wisdom, but it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, there are a lot of people who turn to religion for a number of, of ways, of reasons. I mean, some people go because in it they want a sense of the other, a, tra- a sense of transcendence. And they, they hear about things uh, and they experience uh, rituals and festivals. And, you know, if you have ever experienced a, a, just a, a meal or a, a, a tradition from another religion and said, wow, there just seems to be something beyond about it, something beautiful. Uh, we, you can understand that draw. And I don't care how skeptical you are, sometimes you see uh, religious, whether it's a, a worship service or whether it's a practice that seems to offer healing or some insight into uh, the world beyond in in spiritual, and no matter how cynical you are, you're a little curious. Is there something true in that? Would it work? Is there something beyond? I want to say that that's a good hunger. That's a good hunger, but we don't always know what to do with it. We're drawn to some of these appearances of spirituality. We're drawn to the beauty and the awe that can come from from ceremonies and and festivals. Now that hunger is not bad. Because the truth is, we are built for a spiritual world. We're, We're built to know and to love a God who dwells in in things that are invisible. He has built this into us. And so when we experience the things of this world, we're often tempted to imply that they are the things we should worship. But Paul calls these things shadows. They are shadows and not the real thing. I don't think when he uses the term shadow, he's uh, meaning what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 means by shadow. In Hebrews, it talks about all the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices as a shadow, all foreshadowing 
Christ who would come and his redemption. And so in some way, they, they point to Christ. But rather, I think what he's saying here in Colossians is it's like shadows just the way that, that C.S. Lewis talks about earth, uh, this life, as the shadow lands. Lewis's point there is that oftentimes, because we have a hunger for the transcendent, for the other, we're so built for it that we start to look for things that are great and grand in this life, and we are tempted to worship them and give ourselves to them because we have this hunger and we're looking to fill it. But Paul's saying the reality has now come. And for you to go on worshiping shadows and following after that is to miss the reality that is in Christ. For in Jesus Christ we have God himself the one who, who now dwells in heaven and is reigning on high for us. We have everything that you were hoping to find when you were seeking after visions and angels and spiritual experiences. Everything you were longing for can be found in Christ. To go on with that stuff is to miss out. Everything is in Christ. But likewise, people turn to religion for other reasons, to help them change. They want a fresh start. Perhaps they look at their lives and there are many things in which they would like different. They see behaviors and, and attitudes that they want to change. And sometimes they can associate those sinful behaviors with things of the flesh. I know that if I'm angry, sometimes it, I look to my own blood pressure as the problem. Lust is the same way. We, we look at our own bodies as the problem. Or jealousy or envy or any of those things. Anxiety. We, we look at our bodies. And so Paul says, yes, I know. It's natural that when you fall into these bad behaviors, you sometimes want to punish the flesh. You want to beat down the body. And in some way, trying to beat down the body, trying to do external things to uh, change your behavior, you think you're, you're affecting the desires. But he's saying this will not work. You can't beat down the desires by beating down the flesh. You can't set up all sorts of external restrictions in order to change your heart. You think about this with, uh, with, with diet and weight loss. You know, if, if you want to change uh, your diet, if you want to lose weight, you can throw away all the junk food, you can get it out of the house, you can put a lock on the refrigerator, and you will start losing weight. You will start avoiding that stuff. But you've done nothing to address the hunger. You will wake up every single day starving and craving those things that you long after. And you're just waiting for that one day when you have a moment of weakness and you stop in the 7-Eleven and open the package of Twinkies. It'll always be there. In the same way, you will never become holy by trying to quit your sins out of sheer willpower. Yes, you should resist temptation. But you can never muster up enough self-discipline and willpower to address the deep hunger that we have for sin. It will always remain 
under the surface, in your heart, looking for the opportunity, as soon as you let up, to spring up and attack and take over. What can be done? The answer isn't external religion. The answer isn't self-discipline. There must be a change in our affections. We must change what we love. Parents of young boys know this. Many a mother has scolded their child, threatened them, warned them, please comb your hair, please take a shower, please dress nicely. They will helm them day in and day out. Look presentable, please. And a child will do that every single day until the one day the parent forgets or doesn't say it and then back to being a slob. Of course, until one day the parent looks up and says, why in the world did you comb your hair? You smell good. You're dressed nice. I didn't say a thing. What's going on? And you know, boy's fallen in love. All those years of you trying to hound in and by force get them to do that very thing, to no avail, they're now doing joyfully without one asking of it. Why? Because their affections have changed and it's transformed everything. Christianity is exactly the same. There is no amount of external religion that will ever change your heart affections. It must come from inside. Thomas Chalmers, in his great essay on the expulsive power, great word, expulsive power of a new affection, he describes uh, this uh, going back to religion again and again, but he says the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's only when you can come to Christ when you give your life to him, when you receive that spirit of adoption that's poured out on us, it's only then that the heart, brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. You hear what he's saying? When you know Christ as your Savior, when you, when you love him, when you learn to love him through the gospel, when the Holy Spirit has filled you with that adoration that we were made for, well, then every part of self-made religion seems foolish and laughable. You will still struggle with sin, but man, your heart wants to obey. And you will face every day wanting to get into that battle because you know that that's where life is found. You've been captured by the gospel. The rest of this self-made religion, you know, will never satisfy. Turn again and again to Christ. If that's not your experience, if it just seems to be again and again self-made religion, the answer isn't more discipline. It isn't more ritual. It isn't trying to figure out the 12-step program. 
It's turning back to Christ. Studying who He is, what He's done for you, and the new life He's given you. So that's one criticism of self-made religion, that it just won't work. But it's more than that. Secondly, he goes on that more than just being ineffective, it's actually deadly. You hear that a bit in that Old Testament passage. That passage in Isaiah, uh, it describes, the last line is actually quoted in this about self-made religion, the religion of man. But the whole rest of that context talks about uh, the, the experience of not seeing, not hearing, it's a description of idolatry. However much you create this religion on your own, you're cutting yourself off from real life. Here's Paul's concern as he picks up that same idea. It isn't so much that these practices themselves are bad. It's the idea that as we practice them, we are letting others pass judgment on us in the experience is guilt. Where do you experience guilt? Where do you experience your guilt in day-to-day -day life? Where do you use guilt? I mean, guilt is all around us because guilt is, to all appearances, very effective. Parents know this. You play the guilt card and you get the result you're after or at least you seem to. But it's dangerous because there's destruction there too. You know, mom wants you to call every day or maybe every week. And you call, you make the call every week because it's better to call than to get the guilt trip. But see, mom is not after the call. Mom is after the relationship. And the, the guilt trip gets the call, but it strains the relationship. Guilt is powerful, but it's destructive. And sadly, people, many people, have had their experience with the church be one of guilt. Guilt to do the right thing. Guilt to show up on a Sunday. Guilt to, to do what is expected of you. I was just talking to someone a little bit earlier. Their, their experience of, of the cross even, the very thing that should bring us joy and relief, the cross. You see Jesus up there, and oftentimes the depiction of a crucifixion is, is him in such pain. And, and the response of many churches is, see what he's done for you? Now, shouldn't you live obediently for all that he's done? Boy, that is a twisted way to understand the cross. You need to understand, if you haven't gotten it yet, this is the, the thing. Jesus didn't go to the cross as a victim. He went willingly. He went there because he loves you. Because he knows that he needed to save you. The response to the cross, the healthy response to the cross is not guilt, but love thankfulness, and joy. No, any time that we motivate out of guilt, we are off base. And we can do this in all sorts of subtle ways. 
We could say that to be a Christian, you should look a certain way. You should dress a certain way. You, I don't know how many people you come into this service and you feel guilty. Did I stand at the right time? Did I sit at the right time? Did I kneel at the right time? Am I saying all the right things? And if I mess up, are people judging me and looking at me? Or do I really fit in here? Do I have the right job or the right education or talk the right way? All sort of subtle ways that we can make you feel guilty. Binding your conscience is how our confession puts it. That in many ways we bind your conscience of things that are not sin. You feel guilty. You feel guilty here. We need to be careful that we're not sending these subtle messages. We must over and over again say what is true, that we all here, everyone who is here is here because we need a Savior. Because on our own we're desperate. Because on our own we can't match up. We struggle. We experience brokenness. This needs to be a safe place because this is the place we need to be a sinner and to be honest with that. I mean, the truth is, we're all being judged. We all feel like we're being judged here. And the person who lives uh, what, what might seem on the surface to be an immaculate life, every all put together, and the person who is stumbling around, you know, getting themselves into the service 15 minutes late, worrying how that person who has it all together feels about them, they feel they're getting judged by that person. Well, the other person is so desperate to keep up appearances that they got everything together, they're afraid that if they slip up once, other person's going to judge them. Guys, we just need to lay it on the table sometimes. That we all feel judged. We all feel that sense of other people using guilt and condemning us. Because if we can actually have that conversation, we'd be surprised at the response from the other person. Oh, you were worried about yourself. I was worried about myself. I thought you were thinking that, but you weren't even thinking about me. You were thinking about you. All of a sudden, we'd be able to understand each other, grow with each other. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at here. Guilt is a two-way street. Not only should we be cautioned about making others feel guilty, Paul's warning here is about us allowing ourselves to be judged by others. Allowing ourselves to be guilty. Westminster Confession of Faith, as I said, has this great section on Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. And his po the, the point in that confession says that, that no one has the right, not a pastor, not the church, not a member, another member of the congregation, not a friend, not a relative, not a mother, not a father, no one has the right to be the Lord of your conscience except God alone. And if you're feeling guilt about anything other than sin, then you need to turn from those feelings of guilt and you need to be liberated from that because at the truth of it, you are letting others disqualify you. That's what Paul says in verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you.
by insisting on conforming to these practices. <clears throat> My experience with disqualification was, uh, was very frequent when I was a swimmer, uh, as, a, as a young guy. Uh, you know, swimmers, uh, if you jump into the pool too early in your, your race, dive in too early, if you break into a wrong stroke, you touch the bottom, so stuff like that, uh, it would disqualify you. So no matter how well you swam the race, you could be half a pool ahead of the other person, the, the rest of the, the, the swimmers, you're not going to win the prize if you've been disqualified. Paul's saying this is so serious, you could actually miss out on the grace of the gospel as you turn to these other practices. It's not just ineffective, it's deadly. What's the point in that? It's as you allow yourself to be judged by others, you are denying the true judge. You are taking the, the power that belongs to God alone to judge you. And you have given that power to other people. If you're feeling guilty, what you have done is you have given power to all those around you to be the judge of your life. And that's a right and a role that only belongs to God. Now the thing is, what is God's verdict? What is God's verdict on you? It's not guilty. Vindicated. But here's the thing, it's not because you've run the race really well or, or swam the, the perfect race. No, you are actually far worse than all of your accusers even know. I mean, if they, if they only knew some of the things you, you do or think, uh, they would really condemn you. You get the verdict from God because of what Christ has done. So God, in his judgment of you, looks on Christ and pardons you. When we give over the power to other judges, we deny God's verdict for us and listen to the verdict of others. Let no one disqualify you. The Christian life should be freedom. That's Paul's whole point when he talks about the fact that you have now died. And he'll go on in the rest of Colossians to describe what this is like. He says, if you've come to Christ, it's like you've died. Before you met Christ, you were alive and all these people had the right to judge you and you worked in the system where their judgment mattered. But when you came to Christ, you died. I think about a deaf, dead person. They don't have any worries, right? They're not worried about other people judging them. They don't have to worry about taxes next, next month. Nobody's going to bother them. They're dead. They're not worried about it. In the same way, you are dead to those who are judging you. You've died, and now you're alive to the only one whose opinion matters. Turn to him. In that, you will experience freedom. I'm going to go a step further than this, because it cannot just be the bad things that people use to judge us, the, the mistakes we make, the, the sins we commit, the selfishness, but sometimes it's the good things. If you read the Gospels, you know all the time that, that groups like the Pharisees will pick up laws and they will 
change them in such a way to take a good thing and condemn you. Sabbath is mentioned in this passage. That was a frequent thing. That was, if you read Scripture and understand it, it, it was supposed to be the place where you receive grace. It was the very time in which all the judges in the world, all those people who, who basically had power over you from, uh, from Sunday to Saturday, from Sunday to Friday in uh, the Old Testament, everyone who had power over you didn't have power over you on the Sabbath. That was the day that you had freedom. That was the day that you said, I truly have only one Lord. And that got so twisted that all of a sudden the Pharisees start to change it into what you should do and how you should obey and disqualify you if you didn't fit in with the right uh, obedience to their Sabbath regulations. Taking a thing that was intended for grace and transforming it into something that could disqualify us. The Christian life is intended to bring you freedom. So here's my question for you. Do you feel free? Is that how you would experience the Christian life? Is that how you would describe your experience with the Christian life? Freedom. If not, then there's something wrong. If not, then you're missing the point. You will completely misunderstand Christianity. You will begin to disqualify yourself if guilt is the predominant feeling you get from your Christian experience. Now, don't get me wrong, there is good guilt. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts us when we are in sin. And it's good to feel that guilt, but you see, the difference between worldly guilt and Christian guilt is that Christian guilt should take that and not run into despair, not feel horror about, about ourselves, not, not uh, wear ourselves down, but, but Christian guilt takes that and goes to the cross. And once again, here's what Christ has done for that. Taking our sin, the things that produce the guilt in our lives, and nailing it to the cross, destroying it so it no longer has power over us. If you aren't experiencing freedom, let's talk. That's the whole point of Christianity. Thirdly and finally, self-made religion will not only be ineffective in changing our lives, not only could it disqualify us, but finally it could keep us from the source of true godliness. And we often spend so much energy conforming to other people's standards that we could do, as he says in verse 19 here, we'll miss out. He says, you are not holding fast to the head, which of course is Christ. When we look to these other disciplines, even Christian things, that we think we are, we're growing in our faith, we have these spiritual practices and rituals that we do. If we do them apart from the gospel of Christ, they only become arbitrary. And when they're arbitrary, they lose all meaning. In fact, will be disastrous for you. You will miss out on the true source of holiness, which is Christ alone. In fact, sometimes our spiritual disciplines can produce in us not dependence on Christ, but self-sufficiency. 
that we can make it on our own. We, we, we don't have to be dependent on others. Well, that's not the gospel message. We must be careful not to foolishly seek growth apart from the head. But it's more than just this Jesus and you spirituality. He says here, really, you can't be connected to the head without being connected to the rest of the body. Independent Christian growth is unthinkable. It's as unthinkable as having a severed limb just or a limb that's only connected to the head and not the rest of the body. It makes no sense. Paul says that the head doesn't just nourish the body. The head actually knits together the body by joints and ligaments. That's God's plan. We are all to be called together in mutual independence, interdependence with each other. You can't ignore the body without doing damage to the body. You see, if we can really just sum up what is happening in Colossians, here are people are being judgmental, and their judgmentalism is actually tearing the body apart. But we can do the same thing when we withdraw from the body. We tear at the body. If we're truly connected to the head, then we are being knit together. God is bringing us together. And it's only there that we can experience true community. A community that will, it, it won't be the place that we hear judgment, but a, the, the community where we hear the place, the, the, the words of freedom. is a place where we can experience not all those lords of our conscience out in the world, but the one who has freed us from those lords to serve the true Lord who loves me and justifies me. Is the place where I don't feel the condemnation of guilt, but the place where I hear again and again, week after week, I'm completely forgiven. I'm completely justified. I'm completely accepted. And I'm completely invited to this meal where he not only has communion with me, the risen Lord, but he also ties us together as we have communion with each other. As we come to this table, let's now pray, uh, pray and, and reflect upon this grace that he's given us.